So Dave, it's like Christmas in June. Yep. Yep. Yeah, we got a super duper special guest star on this mm-hmm. episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, it's really not not much to introduce. I mean, it's Dr. David E. Wheeler, um, who's like a god in the universe of open source and security, like literally wrote the book on writing secure programming, um, is a huge open source advocate inside the Department of Defense. Um, uh, the guy knows just an intimidating amount uh, about this topic. Yeah. Um, well, this is a guy that put his PhD defense up on, he has a video hanging off his website. Right, right, exactly. So that's, that's, pretty, that's pretty tough. Yeah, you know, that's, so, and, and, nice. yeah, so smart and brave. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, do, I, I, I don't know, I don't have much to intro. I mean, I think we just jump in, right? Yeah, let's go for it. All right, here we go. So, Dave, I am extremely excited uh, because today we have a guy on the show who we've been talking about for about 50 episodes, uh, but we've, yes. never actually, we've never actually talked to him before, um, at least not on yeah. the show. Um, not on the show. And so this is a friend of the show, David A. We- Dr. David A. Wheeler. David, welcome. Hi there. Thanks very much. Um, oh, and I listened to the show. I've listened uh, all the way through, and in fact... Uh, you made me end up listening to uh, History of Rome, which is an awesome podcast as well. It's it, it, it's excellent, right? Um, and and now yes. he's doing the now he's doing the Revolutions podcasts. Uh, I'm already caught up to date on it. That's right. You did you finished Yorktown because that was a great episode. Yep, oh, that's great. No, excellent. Um, well, that's nice. So first of all, I'm uh, glad to be able to talk to you about some of the like really interesting work that you're doing. Uh, I'm also uh, very flattered that you're. I think you're listening to the show. I really appreciate that. Um, yes. So, David, do you want to give give folks like a 30 seconds kind of uh, who you are, like what kind of work you do, that kind of thing? Basically, uh, most of the stuff that I do involves either uh, developing secure software or uh, open source software or somewhere in between and uh, along you know, some combination thereof. Um, so... I work for a particular organization, but uh, that, that supports the government. Uh, but I'll, I'll, I have to uh, pound include the uh, standard disclaimer, which is I'm not speaking here for them, uh, or as a representative of them, or the U.S. government, or whoever. I'm just speaking as me. In my day job, um, I try to help uh, advise the uh, U.S. Uh, federal government uh, to help them do uh, good and smart things instead of things that won't help them. <laughs> so you, you work a lot. <laughs> you better add in related to those fields, or at least computers, computers in some capacity. Um, yeah. yeah, thankfully you can narrow the scope a little bit. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and, you know, to be fair, everyone loves to bash the government, and you know, sometimes the, there's reasons to. But you know, it, it's a hard task. Uh, everybody mm-hmm. wants them to do something or not do something, but not a, usually people can't agree on what that is. Right. And, uh, you know, and for a variety of reasons, it's really actually kind of difficult. Yeah. So uh, it makes it makes sense that I and the organization I work for is a not for profit. So, you know, we don't have a dog in the fight. If we don't make more or less money, depending on what they choose to do, we just try to give them good advice. Oh, which is a that's a rare animal in D.C. Um, I, uh, David, the first thing I wanted to ask you about is uh Probably the most you know recent and like the biggest piece of security news, uh, certainly in the last uh, last few months, is Heartbleed, right? This uh, catastrophic open SSL bug, right? 
So I suspect that you, since uh, since you work in security and you work on open source and open source security, uh, I, I feel like you might have some opinions about the Heartbleed bug. And I know that you wrote, you did an excellent write-up um, uh, on your blog uh, about how to prevent the next Heartbleed. Um, I wonder if uh, I wonder if you might want to give us some some highlights from that, or uh, uh, what kind, what are the lessons learned, and more, and most specifically, have we learned anything new from Heartbleed, um, or is this just uh, kind of people making the same mistakes that we've been making for years? Well, um, that's actually it's act, that's actually an interesting set of questions. I, I should note, by, by the way, that yes, I've been I've uh, been uh, involved and been talking to all sorts of people. Um, you know, talking to NIST, talking to the Linux Foundation, talking to a uh, private group called uh, Robust Open Open Source, uh, which has a lot of folks you would would recognize. In, in one sense, of course, Heartbleed is just yet another vulnerability in software. Software has lots of vulnerabilities. Uh, you know, just you know, look at the news, and you'll find out about another one. But this one was, um, I think, especially bad in certain ways because most software vulnerabilities, uh, you know, the, aren't as easy to exploit. I mean, this one basically suddenly opens. Uh, you don't have to you know, be a man in the middle or anything like that. You can be anywhere in the world connected to the internet and then attack anybody else. The attack is disturbingly easy to do. Um, and uh, it has the possibility of letting people um, grab the secret keys of the servers, which is, of course, kind of the, uh, you know, the, uh, and other data on the servers, which are kind of the crown jewels of these things. And it's not just servers. You can attack clients also. So right. it's it's basically... It's it's bad. Um, the fundamental under, underpinnings aren't really different, but uh, certainly the effects have been unusually bad. Um, and there's been some other things too about it that uh, you know that were kind of interesting and surprising when I delved into this. Oh well, t- tell us about it. Okay, so basically, um, I, I, you mentioned I wrote this paper. Um, it's called "How to Prevent the Next Hartley." Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, a lot of people, of course, hey, it's a vulnerability. There's some problems. But um, I and some other people then asked, well, you know, how this one happened? Because um, it turns out that a lot of people um, use tools specifically to look for the kinds of vulnerability this had. Uh, just for I, I realize not everybody on the show who listens to the show is uh, technical, but, but uh, um, you know, basically it's a buffer overread. Uh, that happens because of improper input validation. That's uh, CWEs one twenty six and twenty. If you're uh, keeping track at home. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, this, and and it's worth pointing out that these flaws are so common. Like every computer science student has made this mistake, or like has has written code with this error in it, right? It's it's oh, extremely yes. common. Right? Is, these are really common, well known weaknesses. It turns out that a lot of tools specifically look exactly for this sort of thing. And OpenSSL, which is the vulnerable library, is actually routinely examined by lots and lots of tools. So you've got a situation where lots of tools are looking specifically for this problem. Um, it was reviewed by someone who was well under, you know, understood uh, OpenSSL, and yet this thing slipped through anyway. And so um, uh, several folks, uh, myself and, and some others, Kupchin uh, uh, Miller also did, looked at it. Um, it turns out that lots and lots of tools wouldn't find this thing. Um, most tools, uh, tools can generally be grouped into static or dynamic, or a few couple cases that are hybrid. And amazingly enough, when people started digging in and saying, what happened here? Um, 
it turns out that the way that OpenSSL was written and the way the various tools work wouldn't find this kind of vulnerability, even though they're looking for it. And that was kind of a wake-up call that, oh, wait a minute, we know we're looking for it, but we clearly aren't looking for it the right way. And I think that's one of the key things is that, you know, first, you know, um, uh, look at why we failed this time, even though we had an idea of what we can look for. And then let's start trying to identify what we could do to make it so that at least this kind of vulnerability doesn't slip through again. Well, and this has been an, this has been an area of research for you, right? Is kind of who watches the watchman? You mentioned the, the static analysis tools and even the dynamic analysis tools, um, uh, even though they're in widespread use, didn't didn't catch a didn't catch an error like this, and that actually that that leads us to the question of well, how do we know that we can trust these tools which are auditing us? Yeah, tr I think that trust is probably a little unfair. In general, most almost all these tools don't guarantee that you can find vul uh, vulnerabilities. Um, mm -hmm. There's uh, very very few approaches actually make guarantees like that. Uh, there are such things, um, but they tend to, uh, and we can talk about them. But most of these things don't don't try don't claim that they always will find it. That said, usually what people try to do is they combine lots of different tools, lots of different approaches, mm -hmm. using a bunch of these combined together. And yet, when we looked at you know, well, what happened here? Um, it turned out that uh, the way that OpenSSL was implemented basically kind of countered a lot of the tools. And um, and the, I guess really the key point, the good news through this is there are actually a number of techniques that uh, could have found this, um, mm -hmm. and that we need to do do that. But in fact, what this what the Heartbleed really did is it revealed some um, serious I guess some some serious holes in the way a lot of software is evaluated. Not I mean not just OpenSSL, but just software in general. Uh, is often evaluated using sets of tools, and we're realizing that, wow, even when we use lots of approaches, um, the attackers have found, you know, not just a particular vulnerability, but a way that to get through all the tools to counter them, and we need to uh, basically up our game. Right. Uh, you, know, you know, learn from the attackers and do things next time. Now, so, so for folks that haven't like developed code before or have, are only kind of passingly familiar with with some of these with some of the tools that we're talking about, you know, you learn in school that like okay, so uh, programming languages are really just math, right? Um, you know, you, they're they're functions, right? You put given input and you get an output. Um, so how complicated could it be? And I think one thing that one thing that I know is, is confusing to some people is why is this so hard? Um, if it's just math, we should be able to check the the work, right? Um, so so why is it so difficult to to uncover these things? Um, how are uh, how are these how do these problems become so obfuscated that um, even robots with enormous brains can't uh, can't go find them? I guess I can all shorten it up in one simple word: scale. Mm -hmm. uh, it's really easy to be very, very confident in a program that's a few lines long. Um, but you know, I've written a number of articles, and even in short ones, I still find somebody finds, you know, hey, there's a comma out of place. There's mm -hmm. a you know, forgot to put a period here, and you know, we we all laugh and say, okay, if I can get a chance, I'll fix it. If it's just ordinary, you know, text on a page. But other human readers don't have any trouble generally understanding it. We figure out those sorts of things. And, of course, computers aren't humans. They are just machines. They do it exactly literally. And when you forget a comma or put a period in the wrong place, instead of, 
oops, but I can figure it out. They will just do whatever those instructions say. And when it's only a few lines long, uh, you can, with effort, uh, be very, very confident in it. But when it's thousands or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands or, or millions of pages equivalent in length, it's very, very difficult. But I don't also I also want to uh, want people to not lose hope. Um, just because it's difficult doesn't mean that we can't do a lot better. Because, in fact, one of the techniques that you can use to counter these things and actually even be very confident about it is using mathematical techniques. Um, but basically, um, one, one of the things while we got investigated the, the whole OpenSSL thing was that um, it turns out that a lot of people were doing what I would call positive testing. Uh, or interoperability testing. They connect up two things and make sure that when they get, are given correct input, that they produce correct responses. Mm -hmm. That's great. We want programs, when given correct input, to produce correct response. But of course, for vulnerabilities like Heartbleed, that's actually pretty useless. We need to make sure the programs work correctly with incorrect uh, uh, data. And there, there's a whole lot less of what I call negative testing, um, putting in tests that are supposed to fail, but you know nobody's checking to make sure that yeah, they actually. There, yeah, there, there are a whole lot. The, the universe of wrong input is significantly larger than the correct input, right, David? That's true, but you, but you know, and, and but in fact, even for. Um, you know, people have commented, and, and quite correctly, you cannot fully test any real program. Um, it turns out that just if, if you wanted to test a program that added two numbers that were 64-bit values, um, it would take longer than the lifetime of the universe. And that's just a program <laughs> that adds two numbers. Okay? There's just, the whole notion of fully testing a program is nonsense. But that doesn't mean testing is useless. It just means you have to be smarter about it and admit you know, basically be humble. <laughs> you're not, you're only going to test categories. But it's not just that. Um, this has not been a good year for SSL implementations, of which OpenSSL is one. Uh, we just recently had to deal with Apple iOS um, mm -hmm. you know, it, because it let through valid certificates, which is great. It also let mm -hmm. through invalid certificates, which was not great. <laughs> yeah. But apparently... No one was – what was happening, as far as I can tell, and I don't have – I don't have detailed insight into Apple's testing process, by the way. But apparently what's happening is that people are testing to make sure the valid certs get through because, you know, ordinary users will complain about that. But people aren't doing very much testing in terms of, well, what about these invalid ones? These should be rejected and, well, no, actually they're not. And, and GNU TLS, um, different kind of mistake, had the same kind of result. Nobody was testing for various kinds of, of invalid certificates. And, and these were not that complicated. Um, so let me just kind of, I probably should just go quickly through. There's other techniques, um, techniques that involve things like giving computer programs random data and make sure they don't keel over. Um, and is that, that's, is that, that's fuzz testing? That's fuzz testing. That's right. Uh, uh, f for fuzz testing, uh, it turns out that that's remarkably helpful, and here is where we start to see some of the problems with uh, how programs like OpenSSL, and it's not just OpenSSL, are implemented. It turns out that OpenSSL used an approach for allocating memory involving something called free lists. A number of programs do this for speed. It's, it's not unusual, 
I, I think probably almost every GUI program does this. Uh, but the problem was this particular technique foiled most of the, a, a whole lot of the techniques for detecting fuzz testing problems. Uh, a lot of techniques only test when there's a bad overwrite. Heartbleed was not one of those. It's an overread. You have to invoke some special tools to check on that sort of stuff. And because of the way OpenSSL managed its memory, those special tools had no idea what was going on and so would not detect it. And so what I think what we're really starting to see is that there are certain kinds of ways to develop software that foil the very tools we're trying to use. And so we need to change both how we use the tools and how we write the software to make it much easier to find these vulnerabilities so that they don't end up out in the field. Yeah, and David, whenever somebody looks at the code too, is I think it would be really hard for the automated tools to measure the intent of the person that wrote the code. So like you were saying that you know it would take forever to measure adding two numbers together, but what if the programmer programmed it to add two numbers, but he really intended to multiply two numbers? And and I, I, you know, are there are there tools to? I, I don't know if that's even possible. Yes, it is. Um, it turns out that my my. Um, by the way, if anybody um, is uh, technical in this area and uh, you know notices that I'm omitting a, an approach, please let me know. Uh, because in fact, there's a variety of different approaches going anywhere from simple basic testing, um, these negative testing and fuzz testing approaches. Um, there's actually a whole bunch of program analysis pro approaches that can work. Um, although a number of them, I, I mentioned the problem with the how OpenSSL managed memory. Uh, another challenge was just how OpenSSL itself was written. It's a it's very complex. Um, I think many people would say excessively complex. Um, it, it doesn't need to be as complex as it is. Um, and as a result, a lot of the tools to analyze the program line by line basically um, ended up not being able to find it because it was too complicated for the tools that analyze source code or binary code to be able to find it either. You can go all the way up, by the way, to another approach called formal methods. That's you hinted at there earlier about using math. Yes, actually, you can write a spec and then prove a program meets the spec. Um, mm -hmm. The challenge is that uh, that's actually the formal methods has been around for a long time, but really, it's only been recent that uh, people have had a little more success applying these at, at larger and larger problems. Um, it's uh, it you know people who, who are mathematicians generally don't deal with the kind of scale that programs have. And so it's only been recently that people, I mean, people have proved, formally proven various programs before, but only until recently have it become a little more um, uh, practical. And even then, it, it is, it's no small matter, and you really have to write the programs uh, specifically to be proven. You can't just arbitrarily apply them to existing programs. Yeah, so does that, from an open source standpoint, in many ways, I wonder if that's harder to do with open source where you get, you know, a lot of times you get random people providing good feedback and good code patches, but they're not necessarily writing specs or, you know, is does proprietary software have an advantage where you can mandate spec writing and being able to, to prove things or, or how do you see it? I don't think so. I think it's more complicated than that. One of the challenges that a proprietary program has is if it's proprietary and it's proven, but you can't show the proof, 
Um, you can prove that a program does something, but was that actually what I wanted it to do? And you say you proved it. How do you know that you proved it? Um, I think from the point of view of being able to show people that here's what I proved and here's why it's true, uh, open source actually has an advantage. The big disadvantage that all formal methods have it um, really comes down to money. It takes a lot mm -hmm. of time and effort to do this sorts of stuff. And uh, frankly, I'll, I'll note that very, very few proprietary programs also are proven for the same reason. Um, it, so it's not really an open source versus proprietary. It's a, this is an expensive uh, approach, typically only applied to smaller components. Uh, that said, I mean, this uh, crypto libraries are an area where it, this actually makes some sense. Um, and uh, uh, so, so I, I can easily see this being an area where you'd start to apply, you know, tools like uh, Frama C and Y3 or maybe Spark or maybe even Ackle 2. You know, a, there are various uh, tools. And by the way, all the ones I listed are actually open source that can be used to formally prove it. But it's, it's not just a matter of downloading some tools and there it is. Now, I think there's actually stuff in the middle. Uh, there's a whole bunch of approaches tend to be static which basically analyze the code, basically give the various tools more information so that they can analyze the software um, in a more uh, in a better way. And that can go anywhere from annotating the code or putting in a whole bunch of aggressive runtime assertions um, and so on. Probably the one that I hear the most about, by the way, um, the two are either thorough human reviews, which are really excellent at finding vulnerabilities, and switching away from C, C++, and Objective-C. Uh, and you'll see a real separation between in, inside the academic community on that last one. Right. Well, and, and, it was, and it was like kind of thorough human testing that found this Heartbleed bug. Well, there's actually two groups that found it. I actually don't know how Google found it. Um, if, if somebody from Google wishes to reveal that to me, that would be awesome. <laughs> Uh, the other group, I believe, they're well known for fuzzing, mm -hmm. uh, but the the information that they've released on how they found it um, actually it leaves me a little uncertain. It actually looks like they were more creating thorough uh, negative tests instead of fuzzing, but it, it was one of those two techniques or a combination thereof. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so, and David. It there's there's a series of uh, as you say there's there's static tools there's dynamic tools uh, and there's all kinds of different approaches uh, kind of after the fact right that are meant to identify uh, code that is already bad code that's already been written um, uh, but before it has to go out to the public <laughs> yeah before it has to go out right um, but and you also and you're talking about formal methods uh, it also got me thinking about uh, so you know, famously NASA when they're writing software that goes into spaceships, um, these guys are kind of ruthless uh, about the code that they write. Right? You have to right. the, you write ahead of time what the code is supposed to do, and then you go and write the code, and then you write the tests for the code to prove that the code is doing what you what you said it was going to do in the first place. Um, right. And then way over in the other end uh, of the spectrum, you've got. Uh, this kind of crazy, chaotic, uh, frequently it's open source projects, right? These like DevOps approaches where kind of everybody's got their fingers in it. Um, and we're less concerned about uh, doing a, a formal method type approach or a, kind of a more mathematical approach. And it's really right. more about uh, kind of quick response, right? And so if we find a problem, we know we're going to find problems. So we're going to optimize ourselves for identifying and fixing problems once they've once they've been uncovered. Um, uh, and so here I'm thinking about stuff like... Uh, uh, test-driven development, 
Yeah. Right, where, uh, I, I'm, I'm a fan of test-driven development where it makes sense. Now, mm-hmm. there are areas where it doesn't, but where you can do it, I think uh, it's, a, it's a very useful approach. Well, I guess that's, that's a, and, oh, sorry, all that exposition was kind of leading to the question of, um, is, there, is, there a, is there a method of collaboration um, that is better, is one method of collaboration better than another, or, one will, or will one yield uh, better code than another? I'm not, in general, a big fan of one method will rule them all, mm-hmm. um, especially since the, uh, you know, I, I would like, if you're going to claim that, I want to see your quantitative data, and usually you <laughs> find the, uh, the, 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 the box is empty when you open that one up. <laughs> um, but, in fact, but, but in fact, when you, on your lead-in there, I mean, you already hinted that, well, wait a minute, the uh, sensitivity to something going wrong actually varies a lot depending on the environment and the specific kind of component it is. Uh, mm-hmm. OpenSSL isn't particularly unique in terms of vulnerability. I mean, frankly, uh, lots of programs have lots of vulnerabilities. Um, what's important is, is how important it is, and therefore we kind of, I think we need to look at, in this case, we actually, there were a lot of approaches applied, they didn't work, we need to figure out why so that we can up our game and I've actually talked with some other folks, too. I think you've served the uh, Linux Foundation, has raised some funds. Um, I've talked to the NIST folks who have not made any commitments on changing or anything like that, but they are certainly interested in how they can improve things. Um, uh, and, you know, lots of other people have looked at this, too, because, they, you know, they're, they're, this is kind of a wake-up call that we've been using lots of approaches. They weren't nearly as effective as we thought they were um, let's see what we can do to make them more effective. So, the, and you mentioned NIST, um, and so now, now Dave and I are are, are fans of uh, FIPS one forty two, which is NIST's fans, <laughs> which is NIST's uh, certification for uh, for cryptographic software. And OpenSSL has actually been reviewed by third party labs and been certified under FIPS one forty two. And so I know there was a lot of kind of chatter in the community about, well, you know, people are kind of suspicious of this test anyway, and especially with the Snowden stuff, they're even more suspicious. Um, and this was kind of like the nail in the coffin for them. They were like, well, how good how good could FIPS one forty two be if it didn't catch this kind of error? So um, so what's the takeaway here? Like should we just ignore FIPS one forty two certifications from now on? Is it is it not worth doing? Well, I, I think there's a lot of misunderstandings about FIPS uh, 140-2. The dash 2, by the way, is basically a version number. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a very long time ago a 1. Um, <laughs> uh, but the, the, I think the key thing to understand, and a lot of people uh, misunderstood this. And I, I, one of my early write-ups on this Heartbleed, I don't, it didn't make this as clear as, I, as, I, as, uh, as it should have been. OpenSSL was validated under FIPS 140-2, but there are some really important caveats you need to understand about that. First of all, FIPS 140-2 does not evaluate cryptographic protocols at all. They consider that completely outside their scope. The vulnerability in this particular case was in the protocol portion, the SSL or TLS implementation of it. Mm -hmm. Since they don't examine that, they don't examine it. It is the, the validation. I mean, it's, it's, I realize that's a tautology, but they don't look at that. They don't say they look at it, and so they don't look at it. Right, right. Because they're only concerned with the implementation of a particular uh, cryptographic algorithm. It's a little more than that. Um, if you, if anybody's interested, you can go to a NIST 
which posts in great detail exactly what they do and you know uh, what they test for. But fundamentally, they, what they do is they test things called cryptographic modules. And they test them for, as you mentioned, for certain cryptographic algorithms. And they also test them for, let me see if I can remember the word. I think the word is schemes. It, it's a little more than a method, but it is nowhere near a protocol. And, and now I think it's entirely fair to ask the obvious question, well, wait a minute, who's examining the protocols? We all, cryptographic protocols, we're all depending on them. Cryptographic protocols are really specialized and complicated. And so while a lot of people can evaluate and examine these other pieces of software, the crypto stuff is, is frankly special. It's, it's why there's a special government program to look at them to make sure they're okay. Right. Um, and so, when for, you know, so we have a current process that evaluates cryptographic methods. And, oh, I don't remember what the term is, but I think it's scheme. I'm sure someone will correct me later if that's not right. Um, but they don't examine the protocols. And so that's, you know, blaming FIPS 140 isn't fair here. But, boy, we've had three proto cryptographic protocol errors that made big headlines. Heartbleed, the Apple iOS go-to-fail, go-to-fail. And GNU TS also, TLS also had a failing problem, all with the protocol, which they're not looking at. Oh, and uh, there's another caveat here, too, which is interesting and weird. Um, turns out the OpenSSL evaluation isn't for OpenSSL. It's for what they call the FIPS module of OpenSSL. Right. And that's a separate little tiny component that just does the crypto. Um, now, I guess the good, ne good news this time around is because that's a little tiny separate component, uh, with the code derived from standard OpenSSL, but it's not the same exact. That means that they can actually fix the SSL vulnerability of Heartbleed, and they don't have to revalidate because, well, wait a minute, you changed code, that's true, but it wasn't the part you evaluated, so we're all okay. But of course, this just comes back to the, well, that's, I, I mean, that's nice for today, but, so, you know, it, and, and, I, and I suspect that a lot of people are right now thinking, well, we've now revealed a lot of problems. You know, and I think there's lots of ways you could discuss this. Maybe FIPS 140 should be expanded to cover protocols, or maybe there should be something else to evaluate them. But um, it, it's clear that um, the current protocol implementations just aren't up to snuff, mm -hmm. and we as a society need to figure out you know, where to, where to go to get, make things better, and especially those of us who are involved in any kind of software development. Right. Right. Um, and so that, well, and, and to that end, I mean, it seems like one of the nice things about Heartbleed is that it had this, uh, this unusual property, um, as, as a phenomena is that it really became like a cultural event, right? It wasn't just yes. uh, a bunch of nerds like us talking about it. It was, you know, talked about on late night shows and things like that. And a lot of people are attributing the success of that to the, uh, to the marketing of Heartbleed, right? It had this like, it had this really cool looking logo. Um, Great logo. It. Great yeah. logo. <laughs> so is that the, you think, is that going to be the new normal now? These uh, security firms who discover vulnerabilities, they're going to start branding them and giving them like terrifying names uh, so, that, uh, so that they too can get on, uh, get on the nightly news? Oh, I, I, I hope not. <laughs> well, you know what? Actually, I would like it to be on the night on the news because they're so darn rare. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm not living in that world today, but, but I can hope. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, the, the thing is, yeah, there was some great marketing. And you know what? I actually think that that's just fine. 
Um, because in fact, this I think this does at least have the opportunity to be a watershed in the sense that, um, you know, lots of vulnerabilities th- slip through. But this one was kind of remarkable in pointing out that even the people who were doing a lot of stuff, you know, a lot of people complain about, well, no one's looking at the code. Well, no one's testing it. Well, you know, this is one where you know, lots of people had applied tools and techniques to it. And, you know, yes, there were fewer human reviews than you'd like. There, there wasn't that independent mass, uh, mass separate review. But it, it's not the case where nobody cared, nobody looked. Um, people looked and, they, and it still didn't work. And now we know because it's open source why it didn't work. And now we have an opportunity to make things better. Yeah. So, what about the that foundation that got started? Um, uh, you know, building upon the the whole marketing of Heartbleed, um, that that uh, the Linux Foundation started a. It's almost. It sounds to me like the United Way of of open source, where you know all these companies can donate money, and then the Linux Foundation will figure out the technologies that need the most help, and and send money their way to to apply that. I you know in many ways I don't know if that would have happened if it wasn't because of the marketing of Heartbleed the way it was. Um, or, you know, and I think the other thing is for, you know, CIOs to hear about it or have the president of a company talk to the CIO and say, did you get fixed for Heartbleed? Um, whereas I don't think they would have approached them over a CVE number. Um, but but what do you think about that, David, as far as that foundation that the Linux Foundation started to, uh, to, to help the suffering uh, open source projects? Uh, you know, I'm extremely hopeful. I've already talked with them. Um, right now, they're trying to feed, you know, they're they're basically, they're doing exactly what you would expect them to do, which is, hey, will you donate? And B, uh, let's figure out more specifically exactly what we're going to do, because they want to make sure that they use the money well, uh, which is, in fact, why I'm talking to them, because I'm trying to help them identify at a technical level, you know, I'm not going to tell you what to do, but here are some things you can do. And then let's chat about, you know, what would make sense for your particular circumstance. Um, you know, I'm, I'm going to point back to things like uh, the Titanic, which is a terrible event in history. Um, but it actually caused a whole bunch of changes after the Titanic. Uh, there were a whole bunch of laws. All of a sudden, ships were listening to uh, to the radios, the requests for help. Uh, I'm not thinking that there necessarily needs to be new laws from this. You know, if that's if that's what happens, and I think there's some uh, some evidence of that. Um, I think that'd be fantastic. Yeah, and and for the record, it's the core infrastructure initiative is the thing that the ah, Linux Foundation yes. started. That's it slipped in my mind. I had to look it up real quick. But yeah, and um, the other thing that uh, I'd, I'd love to pick your brain on, just to maybe for people that are just they're done with Heartbleed. Um, what about? <laughs> um, the, there was like the Coverity report that that recently came out that again said that open source has fewer errors in proprietary code and um, mm-hmm. you, what's your take on those sort of the you know the Coverity analyses and the reports that they do and it sounds like there's value to it but I'd love to get your take on that. Sure. Um, well, of course, you know you've you, you've already let the cat out of the bag in terms of what their <laughs> their summary was, which is basically you know open source I know on average has lower number of, uh, you know, basically vulnerabilities than the proprietary stuff, which is, you know, um, I actually teach a course at uh, George Mason University on how to develop secure software. And uh, I try to emphasize there and in other circumstances as well that, 
just because it's open source doesn't automatically make it more secure. You have to examine the specific software for what you're trying to do. Uh, there is a there is one potential advantage to open source, and this is this is something called the open design principle. Um, the, the basics about how to develop secure software were identified back in the 70s by uh, Saltzer and Schroeder, and you know open source basically better meets that uh, particular principle. But the problem here is it's just a tendency. Um, you know, Coverti says, hey, here's your average, but guess what? That doesn't mean the particular program you're looking at is one of those <laughs> that's on the on the better one. You know, when you have an average, somebody's on the bad side. <laughs> right. So, so you know, really, when, when you're using software, you still have to look at well, well, let's let's examine this. Um, you know, it, you know, kick the tires a little bit if it's really important to your organization. You know, maybe start smaller and build up. Maybe you know. Uh, one of the great things about open source is you can look at the software. Well, I hire somebody to take a look. Is this, you know, is this uh, reasonable? You know, perfection's probably a little hard to ask for, but uh, you know, you can actually find out some information before you uh, before we make commitments, and um, it's really the right thing to do when you're doing making any major decision. And so, and that brings up a that brings up another question. I'm, I'm curious to hear your take on is. The, this Heartbleed and uh, the idea of embargoing uh, these uh, security problems, uh, and then the even more complicated problem of you know intelligence agencies or you know people keeping these bugs secret so that they can take advantage of them, right? Um, right. Is there? And I realize it's a controversial topic, but I'm wondering if you have uh, you know as an open source advocate, as a um, and as a kind of expert in, in software security, I wonder if, if you have a personal opinion about um, how that kind of problem should be should be worked out. Um, I mean, well, I, I can easily have opinions. <laughs> <laughs> uh, sure, I, I will give you opinions. And of course, they will be my personal opinions with the standard disclaimer. So all right, we did that. So let, let me let me uh, go through some quick history here. Um, way back when, when people started finding vulnerabilities, I think a lot of your listeners actually already know this tale, but I want to make sure everybody is up to speed on this. Um, way back when, when people found vulnerabilities, they would send information to the suppliers, and the suppliers would say, "Oh, well, that's you know, please don't tell you know you, you you'll reveal it to the bad guys, so please don't tell anybody about these uh, you know dangerous vulnerabilities and until we fix it." And then the reporter says, "Sure." And 20 years later, it's still not fixed. Right. Um, and what's happened, of course, is the attackers probably have found it 10 times over. And so the people who are the customers, the users of the software, don't know that, in fact, there's a dangerous vulnerability that's known but not being fixed. Mm -hmm. um, and so as a counter to that, there is a whole movement that uh, typically is called full disclosure. And this is where you just disclose the vulnerabilities to everybody all at the same time. The supplier finds out when the public does. Mm -hmm. Now, some people say full disclosure include, has to include an example of the exploit. I, I, I don't. I mean, you can. I, don't, I wouldn't include that as a necessary precondition of full uh, mm -hmm. disclosure. But the whole reason for full disclosure is, you know what? You, the user of this, are probably already vulnerable. In fact, there's a fairly good chance that the attackers are already exploiting this. So you should know what your supplier has done to you. <laughs> <laughs> right. So okay. this is, well, and this is also like planning for the worst case scenario, right? So right. if I find a vulnerability, I'm going to go ahead and, and 
everyone should have Just the that. maximum amount of information possible so that the the defender isn't put at a disadvantage, right? Right. Yeah. So more recently, there's been a push for a kind of disclosure that some people have called responsible disclosure. I'd th- I I'd I recommend never using that term. That is a highly <laughs> biased framing term. Right. right. I, I highly recommend calling it coordinated disclosure. And the idea is you disclose vulnerabilities, but only after some coordination with the supplier. Um, and usually it basically means you're going to disclose the public after some period of time where that time might be measured. It would generally be measured in days. And that kind of coordinated disclosure is, that seems to be kind of par for the course. Most people, most vendors are, are doing a coordinated, as a matter of fact, the Heartbleed bug, bug was undergoing a coordinated disclosure uh, before someone leaked it, right? That's right. That's right. Mm-hmm. But indeed, I, that's the very problem. It's very, very hard to keep these under wraps for any period of time anyway. And in fact, Heartbleed was interesting. It was found independently by two different groups. Uh, see, a lot of these, a lot of the folks who originally said, "Hey, we'll fix it someday in the great grand future," make this perverse assumption that only one, if someone finds a vulnerability, no one else will. Mm-hmm. And of course, this is nonsense. This is specifically disproved by Heartbleed. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it, as soon as a vulnerability is found, um, it's a reasonable guess that if it hasn't been all found already, it probably will be soon. Mm-hmm. Uh, so. Uh, so, so I, I'm in general. I encourage just uh, coordinated disclosures. Um, you know, I develop software as well as find vulnerabilities. So, um, you know, I would I would prefer being warned ahead of time so I could fix it, so that the people who use my software uh, can have that fixed. Um, that said, I, I'm actually I encourage responsible. Uh, well, I encourage coordinated disclosure, but I understand where the full disclosure folks are coming from. Right uh, now, as far as the uh, the no disclosure, that's the group that worries me the most. And it's right. It's where all the, you know, uh, I, I I don't think I'm revealing any great grand secrets. Um, although I fear somebody will think this is a great, that uh, there's a lot of money in finding vulnerabilities and selling it to the highest bidder. Mm-hmm. Um, you, know, you know, there's been various reports. I, was there, I, uh, I, I guess I could look up the details, but I think there, there was one of. Uh, um, basically, uh, uh, contest where the winner said, "I, I am going to take your money. You, I wouldn't sell it to you for a million dollars. I can make more money holding on to this thing." Wow! Selling it to the highest bidder, and when, when a vulnerability is worth a million dollars, a bug boundary that's worth five thousand is not going to cut it. If your only <laughs> argument is economics, yeah, 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 that that in a t-shirt, yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, or, or, or just a t-shirt. Yeah, there was stickers. one where they will give you stickers. Yeah. yeah, stickers. Yeah. Um, now, now, see, I think bug bounties can be useful, but let's admit it. The economics aren't really favorable to the defense at all. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I've actually floated an idea, and this is more kind of a concept, but we actually deal with this in society on other things. We do not allow the sale of organs because that would imply certain activities that we don't want to encourage. Right. Okay. Generally, we live in a, in a capitalist society, capitalist world, but there are some things we actively forbid sales or certain kinds of activities because we don't want to go down that rat hole. Mm-hmm. I think we could actually do something along those lines. We could uh, do something like, hey, you can announce your vulnerability to the world. You can tell the supplier, but you can't sell it on an open market. <laughs> um, 
And now there's probably now some people are going to be unhappy and say, well, what about selling to the government? Governments are never going to pass a law that says you can't sell me a vulnerability. Right. <laughs> right. But but if you made it so that hey, you can't sell it except to say you're that the, the government you're a citizen of, it would at least cut down greatly the uh, economic incentive to find vulnerabilities and sell them to people whose sole job is to exploit them. Well, you know, you're right uh, to organize crime, to lots of other unsavory organizations, right. um, to governments that probably they wouldn't agree with any other policy, but they have money. Right. Well, you know, your, your, your metaphor is, or yeah, your metaphor is, uh, is a good one uh, because while an individual is not legally permitted to sell their organs, once you donate those organs, they're handed over to these organ clearing houses, which are permitted to sell the organs. Um, and so there's... Uh, oh, said this specifically, because we do not want the societal impact yeah. that would have yeah. with a straight open market, which is which usually we do want to have. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. but this is a case where the economics, frankly, are not helping. Right, they create these kind of very, very poor incentives <laughs> to do things like sell your kidneys, right? <laughs> so, mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. So, so now I, don't, I honestly don't know if that would work. And my guess is that there are some, you know, loopholes and details. But, but I, I think what we need, what I would really recommend is we need to step back and figure out how to change the economic incentives. Because right now, we've created a situation where we want to have secure software, we want to have secure systems. But there sure is an incentive not to actually have them. Yeah, that's right. And, and there's and it's like a Hobbesian state of nature out there with uh, you know this uh, attackers and defenders um, all competing. You know, trying to race to the next bug, right? Um, right. Yeah, yeah. And defenders have a harder job anyway. I mean, fundamentally, defenders have to ch have to defend a whole bunch of points. The attacker only has to get in one or or maybe a few layers. So sure. it's 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 already harder to beat a defender. Mm -hmm. And these economic incentives are not helping. So if we can figure out a way to make things better, uh, that would be awesome. Yeah. Well, and this is a nice segue to the next thing I wanted to talk about. So I, I do want to talk about this uh, database or this uh, spreadsheet that you published uh, earlier uh, today. Sure. Um, but, uh, but before we get to that, I did want to uh, have you ask you to talk a little bit about uh, SCAP, right? So we're talking about the difficulty a defender has. Um, one of the most difficult things that it, for a defender to do is actually to identify problems that you have in your system, even known problems, um, and then right. go and fix them, right? And so uh, Dave and I have talked uh, about SCAP a lot, um, in part. That's because yep. Sean Wells pays us 20 bucks every time we do. Um, and <laughs> you guys are cheap. Uh, <laughs> we are cheap. That's right. Yeah, um, or, or kidneys or Bitcoin. Um, <laughs> <that's right. laughs> or vulnerabilities. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's right. Um, and so the, uh, so, you know, so for so for SCAP, it actually makes it easier for the defender because uh, you can it automates the process of uh, comparing your system against a list of kind of known problems um, and then you know kind of revealing those problems and then you know eventually uh, eventually fixing them. Um, where do you see that technology or that protocol that standard? Where do you see that developing over time? Because it. Uh, it seems like it seems very very promising. You got a lot of vendors involved in it. You got a lot of uh, people signed up yep. to kind of build content and things like that. Um, wh what's the next step there? I mean, I know I've heard about stuff like SWID or SWID um, and things like that. Like, yep. how, how do all yeah, those yeah. things fit together? Fridays. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. In general, my fuzzy, my uh, crystal ball is really fuzzy. Uh, let me just say some statements that I can say confidently, and then we'll. I'm, I'll, I'll toss my hands on a lot of the rest of it. Sure. Um, you know, it's because. I'm a big believer in automation. The whole idea that you're going to do by you're going to configure thousands of systems by hand is just nonsense. Um, so, I, so very much on on board there. Uh, the idea of having a single internet, a single standard across systems to do that automation, I think, is absolutely necessary uh, because try you know. As soon as you try to lock it into a single vendor, you are stuck with those single vendors. Uh, those single vendors are very quickly not going to be incentivized to make things better. So I, I'm all on board on automation. I'm all on uh, automating this problem. I'm all on board on um, you know, having a standard for it. Um, I think right now one of the bigger challenges in SCAP, if you follow, well, I guess you probably do follow some of the uh, mailing lists and such about applying. I mean, the, the, some of the real challenge now is, okay, we've got a standard language for saying lock it down great, what do we actually do to lock it down? Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, for, for example, in the DOD, the uh, DISA has been working with various vendors to try to figure out, you know, how do I lock this down? Historically, that would be, you know, hey, here's a description and document that shows you how to turn the knobs. And that was great when there were three knobs, but that's not the case anymore. Right. Uh, so... I think right now the real challenge is turning these concepts into a lot of specific actionable items that you can just say, go do that, and it goes and does that, and then it's done. Uh, That's currently very much in process now. Um, Obviously, you can make SCAP do a whole bunch of things at once right now, but there's lots of areas which are right now kind of tricky. Um, you can inform me, for example, but I don't recall that SCAP's able to, for example, um, force certain kinds of partitions on uh, on storage devices. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, you know, and if you, if you go back and look at, for example, some of the security requirements where they try to, hey, you've got to partition this out so that if there's a problem in one area, it doesn't leak over in these others. Um, you know, is that easy to do in any automation? No, that's, you know, but, but it's that sort of turn, you know, that hard work of turning the good ideas into practice. And, and the good news is that's already ongoing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I think we're going to be seeing this refinement over a fairly lengthy time, but, but that's okay. I mean, well, in fact, I guess in some sense, it's probably just going to keep going, going forever because people always have a new idea for, making things better and sometimes it'll be easy to implement with the way things are and some will be probably a little harder and so maybe we'll have to make improvements to the underlying infrastructure to make it all work so, so i i think there's great promise here um but uh you know as all, as with all all these things that the the challenge is to make it all work together and this is one of those areas where it's just gonna it's gonna take time to mature this thing right right yeah that makes sense. Uh, please uh, feel free to tell me if you think that's nonsense. <laughs> no, no, I think you're. I think you hit on something important there, which is, um, which is that there's, uh, for especially for to solve a problem like the problem that SCAP solves, it's a process of continuous improvement, right? And you got to kind of anticipate that you will always have to improve the process, especially when you're talking about something as complex as like configuring a system. The good news is that SCAP uh, basically accelerates your ability. To do to do improvement process mm-hmm. improvement. You basically, you know, now instead of oh look, 
I just realized a better way to configure systems. I'll add it, this line to the documentation, and then I'll have my uh, my thousands of minions go out to my 10,000 systems and go tweak each system individually. Um, and that, of course, was never going to fly. Um, so the, 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 you know, creating this lever where now I can start, you know, making these changes more broadly um, is great. But, you know, the challenge is you have to define a nice, flexible language and, and tooling and everything else to really make this all work. And, you know, it's, it's going to take time. Yeah, yeah. It's a, <clears throat> it's a, our, our mutual friend, John Scott, talks about the, uh, the OODA loop, right? Um, and like mm -hmm. tightening right. the OODA loop in order to improve a, a security posture. That, that makes a lot of sense. That's right. Yeah. And I think, I think this cap provides at least the hope of, of uh, shortening the, uh, the time to go through on that OODA loop. Mm -hmm. So you, so you recently released this, uh, you, you, I think you talk about, you say it's an open source or a FOSS database or numbers database. Uh, it, it actually looks to me like a, like a bibliography. Um, what, can you tell us a little bit about what this corpus is and, uh, and what it might be useful for? Absolutely. Although uh, corpus is uh, Latin for body and I'm hoping this is not just a dead body. <laughs> um, so basically, um, a bibliography is actually not a, not a bad way to describe it. Um, but I think some history of this will probably help. Mm -hmm. um, years and years ago, I became very interested in this uh, open source or free software uh, or Libra software idea, uh, uh, open source software. And so I asked what uh, I usually do when confronted with something new. Well, of course, it wasn't really new, but became becoming more and more prominent. So, well, has anybody done any research on this stuff, and what have they found out? And it turned out that there had, and it also turned out that, in general, nobody knew about it. <laughs> uh, a lot of these things were kind of obscure, difficult to find. In a number of cases, um, they'd done a study, but it hadn't. But they hadn't intended it to be a study in open source. It just ended up providing useful information about open source, and so. Uh, these things were, were tricky to find, and so I started collecting them. And basically, I just put them on a web page, on an HTML page, and just every time somebody pointed out something to me or I found something, I um, just edited my uh, HTML page and put it up. And I would generally include, okay, what is it, and what's the important thing to know about it from an open source viewpoint. And I grouped them into categories so that if you're only interested in security things, you could find those. If you're interested more in um, uh, you know, uh, cost or return on investment, you could find those and so on. Um, well, I, you know, I figured, hey, I'll do a little bit of that. And it kept growing and growing. <laughs> and after it got kind of big, in fact, it got absurdly big, um, I said, well, you know what? This is great. My, I figure that though increasingly this is going to become pretty obvious, and we won't need to do this anymore. And at least in the you know, lots and lots of people use open source, but uh, in the government, there's still you know there's still some hesitance mm -hmm. um, in a lot of governments, and there's certainly a lot of hesitance around the world on releasing um, software as what I would call floss, free libre open source software. Um, that's a universal term I try to use to try to make everybody happy. And so basically, uh, I got an offer from somebody else that, hey, um, you know, that thing's really big and it's kind of hard to manage. Uh, I'm willing to type it up for you and put it in this and uh, into a format so that people can use it as a database. 
So it's, and I thought that was excellent. That's right. So, um, so I do want to give um, a, a shout out to uh, Paul, who, well, did a lot of typing. <laughs> Uh, so, um, uh, Paul, uh, Rodley, thank you very, very much. Basically he transferred my document into, uh, a big Google docs spreadsheet. Um, and he actually typed it in, finished a little while ago. And I had this dream of, well, I'll set up all these complicated, um, cool database systems. And then I realized, now, wait a minute, why am I doing that? <laughs> the people <laughs> who are doing this kind of research, all they need is the data. They can do lots of analysis if you just give them the information. Yeah. And so if I, what I'm doing is I'm posting it to make sure that people know uh, that there's a, uh, a nice, easy way to get this information. At, at the moment, I'm planning to focus a little more on updating just the database. Um, but I'm not getting rid of the paper because um, sometimes things in paper format are just a lot easier to work with and view. Right. So, um uh, and I've also set up a little mailing list to discuss it. So if you have druthers on this, is this really for those people who are trying to gather evidence as opposed to just, um, you know, gee, I guess, mm -hmm. uh, but you need to get actual quantitative justifications for why something is true relating to freely open source software. And, um, you know, I would like to think that a lot of people, when they make big decisions, try to look for the evidence about it, the, the best, you know, the best that is available. Right. And right. the resource that makes it so that instead of doing all the hunting yourself, I've done a lot of hunting for you. Oh, that's excellent. I, I know that, uh, I know, I, you know, I spent the I've spent years, you know, making open source arguments myself, and I know that uh, I I am often not as quantitative or rigorous as as maybe I could be, and, and in part that's because you're right. Like a lot of this information is difficult to find, um, so mm -hmm. I'm really grateful to have this uh, to have this spreadsheet. Uh, this is this, this is really great. Um, so thanks to you and thanks to Paul for for putting it together. Um, yeah, can I do a quick shout out? Yeah, please. I'll, I, I'm missing something. Please tell me, <laughs> or please help. <laughs> edit it because in fact this is something that you know uh i know that people are just doing more stuff all the time and i'd like to uh, keep it up to date and now it's in this form it should be easier to do so uh, this is a, so and i want to i wanted to point out for folks who are listening that this is the i think the third time dave has asked people for feedback um this is a guy who is <laughs> this is a guy who's living the open source lifestyle this <laughs> is yes absolutely yeah yeah, so David, we, my gosh, we covered a whole lot of stuff. I, I took copious notes, and I'm, I'm putting them in the show notes. But uh, for people to look up the show notes to get to uh, the spreadsheet, to read your your uh, uh, paper that you wrote and everything, where, where should we send them, David? Well, I suspect that they could visit dgshow.org, and uh, they might want to see my website, too, uh, www.dwheeler.com. Nice, nice. Okay, great. Uh, David, thank you so much for joining us. Um, this was a real treat. Uh, uh, would love to have you back on. Oh, I'd love to, I'd love to do it. All right. Excellent. Yes. Yeah. Thanks a lot, David. Mm -hmm.